0: This is EP360, your connection to the Electric Power Conference. I'm David Wagman, Content Director for Electric Power, and your host for this podcast episodes offer interviews with industry leaders, showcases of products and services exhibited at Electric Power, as well as the latest updates on the annual Electric Power Conference, which takes place April 21st to the 23rd in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Here's today's podcast. (laughs) My guest today is Travis Cavola, a commissioner with the Montana Public Service Commission. He also is the chairman of the Public Utility Commissioners Energy Imbalance Market Working Group and the co-chairman of the Northern Tier Transmission Group. Commissioner Cavola will offer keynote remarks on the emerging energy imbalance market in the West as part of the Western Power Summit, which takes place November 5th to the 6th at the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas. Commissioner Cavulla received his bachelor's in history at Harvard University and, while there, was a leader of the campus conservative movement editing the Harvard salient and writing a regular column for the daily newspaper, The Crimson. Commissioner Cavulla also holds a graduate degree from the University of Cambridge, England, where he was a Gates Scholar. He joined me by phone from his office in Montana. Here's our conversation. Commissioner, at 30 years of age, you were one of the youngest state regulatory commissioners in the country. Not only that, but you were elected to the office after a statewide campaign in Montana. What sparked your interest in regulating public utilities?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I guess I'm kind of an econ nerd is the simple answer. You know, I've moved back to Montana where I'd originally grown up. I'd been living previously uh, in East Africa where I was a journalist. And when I moved back to Montana, it was my sincere intention to sit down and write a book about things utterly unrelated to utility regulation, uh, but suddenly I was pulled in by a longtime friend of mine who was looking to reform uh, my hometown government's municipal electric utility, uh, which had run up some $17 million in red ink, all of it going on to the backs of taxpayers who were not even uh, taking service from the electric utility. So it was, it was a bit of an outrageous situation, and uh, I threw my uh, efforts behind that, and my predecessor on Montana's Public Service Commission happened to be on the same side of the issue. So uh, I replaced him, and, uh, and here I am. I have to say the learning curve has certainly been steep as an elected commissioner, and I joke that it's like going back to college. Uh, that's one good thing about being a, a 29-year-old regulator is that your, your head actually has room for new stuff.
0: Well, you currently chair a group of regulators from across the West who are examining issues related to an energy imbalance market. Uh, This would be a new mechanism in the West uh, and would see its first implementation in California involving Pacific Corp. How would an EIM work, and what are the primary regulatory issues you and your colleagues are looking at?
1: The energy imbalance market is almost a misnomer for what it really is. People who participate in an EIM are really participating in a real-time energy market with every five-minute dispatch signal sent out across whatever footprint they agree to. Right now, uh, you've got uh, a situation in the western United States where... Uh, as it has been historically, pretty much everyone is the king of their own castle. You've got 38 balancing authorities. Most of them still uh, do almost exclusively hourly scheduling, uh, notwithstanding FERC's encouragement for intra-hourly schedules. And that imposes a big problem on each of those BAs because each of them have to go it alone in balancing their loads and resources over the scope of an hour. So for instance, up here in Montana, uh, we've got a lot of wind energy development uh, as, does, as do neighboring balancing authorities like Idaho and BPA. And uh, we're in a situation where, let's just use an illustrative example, uh, and imagine that you have 100 megawatts of, of load and 100 megawatts of resources scheduled for your particular BA. If you end up with 110 megawatts of generation showing up because of an unanticipated weather system that causes wind generation to spike, you've got to take some kind of generator a natural gas generator or some kind of demand response and back it down uh, in order to have load. And resources in balance in that VA. But let's say your neighboring VA has exactly the opposite problem. They've scheduled for 100 megawatts, but only 90 megawatts of generation shows up. They would have to, if in a go-it-alone fashion, ramp up a natural gas generator. Now, why, if your neighboring balancing authorities, would you be in a position where one would have to ramp down and the other would have to ramp up, if there's a possibility that if you net those two imbalances together, uh, you you equal zero you don't have to move anything. And so that's basically the theory behind an EIM, that by aggregating the diversity of imbalances across a footprint, you're reducing the total need to dispatch uh, or redispatch expensive generators, uh, and ultimately you're sending a much better price signal uh, in a market that is certainly one of the more opaque ones in the United States.
0: Mm -hmm. What are some of the costs and risks uh, involved in an EIM?
1: There are immediate one-time costs. And I'll I'll, I'll split the costs into ones that are quantitative and fundamentally economical, but the bigger costs that people see are are really not costs in an economic sense. Uh, They're they're values that people uh, would presumably put some dollar value on. things like jurisdiction and and, uh, stuff like that. But to address the economic costs, certainly there's costs of improving uh, your metering system, uh, the the infrastructure, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of substations um, in the West that are not fully automated, um, but automation is an industry-wide trend that is going to happen will need to happen even to do 15-minute scheduling, notwithstanding the presence of an energy imbalance market. So I I see those costs largely as unavoidable, uh, notwithstanding the question of whether an EIM happens or not. Uh Really, the more significant bucket of costs, and I hesitate to use the word costs with this, uh, are jurisdictional concerns. Um, There's a lot of people who participate in the wholesale energy market right now, a market which is latently regulated by FERC, but certainly not with the sort of panache with which FERC regulates RTOs or other types of organized markets. And those some of those people uh, would have concerns about participating in a regionally- uh, regional market that centrally dispatches.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, does an EIM raise the uh, the specter of expanded federal regulatory authority over Western power markets?
1: You know, as a legal proposition, in my view, it does not. FERC regulates the wholesale energy market, whether or not you have an EIM. However, with EIM, you are creating a structure uh, of some kind that would have its own tariff filed at FERC, or, uh, or in another proposal I've seen, the constituent utilities that participate in an EIM would file. Uh, in their own open access transmission tariffs, identical language. There's a concern that FERC might reach in and play around with those rules more than they might play around with the rules that govern uh, the current bilateral energy market. Um, But as a legal proposition, FERC's the regulator no matter what. You can't escape their jurisdiction uh, if you are selling uh, energy uh, in the wholesale electricity market, And, and that fundamentally is what everyone is Doing whether or not you choose to have central dispatch or not. You know, to my view, my job is to deliver the lowest cost possible with the most reliability to ratepayers. EIM accomplishes both of those things.
0: Now, from a state perspective, or a state regulatory perspective, what are the major issues that you and your colleagues are looking at uh, uh, with uh, w- with the work you're doing with the committee?
1: Well, uh, you know, we're lo- we're going to be looking very closely at when the California ISO and Pacific Corp. start their market simulation in July, uh, and the market has a go-live date of October. Um, We want to make sure that the market functions the way uh, it's said to be functioning. That's, you know, number one. Number two is how do you create a durable governance structure for a regional EIM? Uh, Right now, The California uh, ISO is governed by a five-member board of governors appointed by the governor of California. Obviously, if an EIM is going to have a regional footprint outside of the state of California, it's not acceptable that it be governed uh, by a group of people who are exclusively appointed by the California governor. So we're, we're going to have to look and think, how can a body that governs an EIM have certain delegated powers from the California ISO uh, in order to administer and give policy oversight to that market, uh, without going so far that you would require, for instance, the, the you know the California legislature uh, to pass new laws, which would be a very very hard thing to do. Um, that's not the only EIM that's under development in the West. The Northwest uh, also has a plan underway, Um, theirs is, uh, their work is much earlier, there's no implementation date that they have on the horizon, and we're watching that too. They're grappling with some of the same governance issues there as well.
0: Former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill famously said once that all politics is local, and I wonder uh, when you talk to folks in Montana how you translate an EIM into into advantages from Montana. Will it help, for example, wind resources in your state find their way to load centers in California and Arizona? What's the, what's the local angle for you?
1: Well, it should make it, you know, it is not a replacement for bilateral contracting and power purchase agreements over the long term. So it's not going to make wind more attractive on the simple basis of uh, ability to sell all of their output at a known price. That's not what it's for. However, it should make integrating that wind into the grid a lot more simple. And I've got to tell you, when you look at the costs associated with on a dollar per megawatt hour basis, associated with integrating wind in the west they are sky high compared to the costs of integrating it in say uh, the mid-continent ISO. I mean literally in speaking to uh, uh, Iberdrola um, they experience costs uh, about of about $12 a megawatt hour for their projects uh, in the Columbia Gorge. Um, for their projects in the Midwest, it's more like $1 a megawatt hour. And and that is a testament to some of the inefficiencies that are latent in the Western way of doing things. You know, I, I, I think a basic regulatory principle, coming back to this is, uh, from my view as a regulator, is that monopolies like to act monopolistically and it cannot simply be assumed that they are operating in an economically efficient manner. And I think nowhere is that truer in the natural reluctance uh, that is occasionally evidenced by the unwillingness to work together one balancing authority to another in the western United States. People like to be the king of their own castle, uh, even, if it means it's, uh, even if it is uneconomic costs of being the king of your own castle are not even borne by the king but are borne by you know his subjects, uh, then the proposition is even more attractive so you know out here in the west we've got a situation uh, which looks a little bit like feudal Germany, uh, other parts of the country. Do it a little bit more seamlessly. And, uh, you know, the last time the West was having conversations about organized markets, uh, you know, one or two decades ago, we really were in a position to be trailblazers, and there re- really were uh, causes for more skepticism and concern. Uh, you know, now we're the Luddites. Uh, we're, we're atypical, uh, not only in the United States, but in the world, uh, in the way that we do things, in the way that we dispatch resources and integrate our grid. And that alone should be reason for introspection and to think about the cost and reliability benefits that something like an EIM could bring. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Well, let's talk a couple of minutes, if we could, about carbon regulation. Uh, the EPA on June 2nd proposed its rules related to carbon emissions from existing generating assets um, using as a basis Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. Do you support EPA's action on carbon?
1: Um, I don't, and there's one good reason for it. Um, I think... Global climate change is an intractable problem of geopolitics, and even if it could be assumed that EPA's regulations will accomplish what they purport to do, a 30% nationwide reduction by 2030, it cannot be assumed that other countries will beneficently follow in our footsteps, even if they did. Even if they reduced their carbon emissions by 30% by 2030 against a baseline of continuing population growth with a bigger and bigger carbon appetite per person uh, over, over the length of the next two or three decades, I find it very hard to think that we're going to solve uh, the climate change problem. There's a concept uh, in debate called solvability, and I don't see this solving the problem. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are hung up on debating the science of this matter. That is a distraction. Uh, But on the left, you have a lot of people who seem to think that if they only win the scientific argument, which inevitably they will, uh, that that in and of itself is ipso facto a conclusory argument for actually doing something like this. Uh, It is not. And uh, I really just don't necessarily see how this is going to uh, to. Uh, you know, help the economy and solve the problem.
0: What approach might you propose as an alternative?
1: Well, as I said, the adjective I used is intractable. Um, I've got to think that ultimately uh, there's a techno-fix out there that we are probably not even aware of. And man, through his ingenuity, will always find a way to deal with these things, especially as the costs of a problem become more and more apparent. Uh, at the moment, uh, if if the costs are already occurring, uh, and and some people say they are, some people say that climate change is already taking a toll on some places. that I think is a little bit more doubtful than the actual science uh, of you know increasing the particles of carbon dioxide and refracting wavelengths of light into the into space and therefore effectuating a heat transfer. But putting that aside, when costs become more and more apparent, People can respond to those costs. Human ingenuity can respond to those costs. And, you know, obviously if humanity uh, isn't up to it, then, then nature will. So, you know, I'm not sure. I, one thing I do know is that you're not going to do it by the EPA haphazardly setting up 50 different carbon markets as a default. Um I mean, anyone who's read the rule at this point knows, uh, for instance, that you know Montana and Wyoming uh, were the states that have been granted long-term rights to emit. You know, part of the problem with using Section 111D of the Clean Air Act to do this is that it was never meant to regulate carbon dioxide, and the regulatory exegesis of that section of law uh, creates markets that no economist certainly would ever create. Um, because they are uh, going to be exploitable by each state's parochialism. Um, And uh, I I just don't see the way this is structured leading to really economically sound decision-making. I see it leading to a situation of uh, states seeking advantage from their neighbors and uh, many parts of the country. And uh, there's going to be a great convergence of all of the topics uh, we've been discussing, whether it be eIM or carbon markets or things we haven't discussed like natural gas and infrastructure on that end there's just going to be a huge convergence of those issues uh, because they're all interrelated and you know if, if I think the the EPA may effectively have um, you know delivered us something of an energy policy if the rule holds together um, one that that something like an EIM could could help to at least cope with. If we can't build the hardware, then we really need to think about improving the software that runs on our existing hardware. And, that, and that's what an energy imbalance market and more efficient uses of the existing transmission grid uh, are all about. So seeing how those things fit into the policy agenda that's being laid out by EPA, uh, that's something I look forward to talking Broad brushstrokes, they've handed down in this rule uh, a national renewable energy standard, a national energy efficiency standard, a national efficiency target for coal-fired generating units, and a national mandate to preserve and pay capacity to the existing nuclear fleet, uh, and also to encourage a shift uh, to the greater utilization of combined cycle units. So it's it's just an extravaganza of the rule of a rule in terms of. Policies it's condoning uh, and assumes to be in place for the purpose of arriving at each state's individual goals, but then the the ball gets thrown to the states, and uh, those those goals are uh, simply numbers that states can. Um, comply with however they want to. So it's, it's, it's a national policy in broad brushstrokes, uh, but as I said, it's also 50 different carbon markets as, as a result, and it'll be up to states to decide uh, whether to go it alone. State by state, or whether there's some kind of durable regional structures they can create, and uh, I, I've got to tell you, the rule just being out—that's a conversation people will not necessarily be having this year, but in 2015, 16, 17, uh, all the way till the end of this decade.
0: Well, Commissioner, I appreciate your taking time to speak with me. It's been a fascinating discussion, and I look forward to welcoming you uh, to the uh, to the keynote. in Las Vegas in November uh, for the Western Power Summit. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, David. That's our program for today. The EP360 Podcast is produced by Access Intelligence, which also holds the copyright. For more information on the Electric Power Conference, visit electricpowerexpo.com. I'm David Wagman, and for all of us at the Electric Power Conference, thank you for listening.